Hello, Learning Curve listeners. In today's interview, we discuss topics like sexual assault and violence toward women. Audience discretion is advised. Gerard, I'm back. Welcome back, back skier. Yeah, well, I don't know if you would really call what, what we were doing skiing, especially when I'm <laughs> teaching a, a four-year-old. I, I'm the one that got tasked. You, there's no um, lessons for the little kids due to COVID because the instructors would have to like pick them up all the time. So oh. I, I only got in a few good runs and, and spent a lot of joyful time picking my four-year-old up off the bunny slopes, but it was good. Did you miss me? I did. I said great things about you with our co-host yeah, last yeah. week. And when you uh-huh. listen to it, I'm sure you'll get a good laugh. But glad to have uh, you yeah, back. Yeah, I bet. I'm excited. Now, Gerard, do you know it's a special week? Do you know do you know what's going on this week? Do you know what it is? I'm scared to say. In fact, is it something to do with anniversaries for our wives that men are getting ready to miss? Anything like that? Oh, what are you who who tipped you off? It's our podcast anniversary. Gerard. Aha. Uh-huh. That's right. Isn't it? I don't know. That's I always right. get my own anniversary wrong. My husband says he thinks I'm the only woman on earth that can't remember the date of our anniversary. <laughs> I think I think it's been a year of this collaboration. Yes, and if memory serves me correctly, Neil at Cato was our at least our first guest together. I think I think that you are right. And so um I the the question is then Gerard like what'd you get me? I knew it was something. I knew it. Uh <laughs> what did I get you? Uh I will I will go easy on you today with any jokes or side comments. So that, that Oh, nice. okay, thanks. And how about the text? <laughs> yeah, dear listeners, because what he usually tries to do is text me throughout the show making me may, trying to get me totally off my game, which is not very hard to do. All right. So listen, we're going to we're going to get this thing rolling because, man, Gerard, we have got a guest today that I know you're excited about. I'm very excited about. We'll we'll talk about that in a minute. But we do have a couple stories um, of the week. As always, I'm going to I'm just going to get straight to the headline of mine from Chalkbeat, which is okay. um, schools must still give standardized tests this year. Biden administration says so two things. here. I'm going to say Chalkbeat. Okay, maybe a little bit misleading on the title because, yes, while the administration is saying they want states to give tests, there's still going to be a lot of air quotes, flexibility. Um, and, and of course, we know, you know, even those of us who I think you probably fall on the side, I know I do, really believe that it's important that we have data about what's happening. We, we have to understand that, like, it's just going to be a debacle. Test administration is really uh, going to be difficult no matter how you cut it. Yep. Um, a lot of states have been committed to going forward with it no matter what. I am personally hoping that um, we can really learn about new testing mechanisms during this time. Like, come on now. I, I mean, how many kids should really still be bubbling in 
um, you know, Scantron sheets, which I think is still happening in many, many parts of this country when we could really be taking tests online. We need to get ahead of ourselves. The other one thing I'll say that sticks out about this piece is, you know, there's a difference that not everybody realizes between the tests themselves and then the accountability mechanisms that are tied to the tests. And, you know, here, one of the things that the administration is very clear on is like, hey, folks, we, we need you to take these tests. We need the data. We need to know where kids are at. But also saying, um, but don't worry, we're not going to hold anybody accountable for low performance. But those schools that had been categorized as low performing back in, I don't know, when were we not in this? 2018, 2019, the last administration? Yeah. You know, those schools, um, theoretically, some of them might have done a pretty darned good job throughout this whole mess. And um, it gives me pause to think that some schools will still be languishing in a certain performance category uh, because they may or may not have a choice to say, no, actually, we want you to hold us accountable for our test score. So hmm. thinking specifically, of course, in my brain, I, I, I often go to charter schools because I'm so intimately involved with them. And charter, you know, charter schools, many in many places live or die by uh, by test scores, meaning they're authorized or not. <laughs> they are authorized or reauthorized or not, dependent on test scores. So I think that there are a couple things to to think through here. But nonetheless, this tells us that this administration, um, I think the important message here is that even though it's going to look a little bit different, uh, they are not completely devaluing standardized testing as uh, unfortunately a lot of people would like to see. So that's my well, story of the week. Well, I'm glad to hear that they are not when President Biden was Vice President Biden uh, and he was working for President Obama and Arnie Duncan was Secretary of Education, followed by John King. All four of them were pretty clear about accountability standards and making sure that we were not leaving uh, children behind. And so I'm glad that he's at least keeping that theme. And I'm with you. You know, if some schools say, hey, hold me accountable, uh, let's try it. My story is about education, it's about school boards, but it's a little it's a little sad. And you know you're in trouble when the opening line for your article is uh-oh. And this is published by Maria Kramer, February 20th in the New York Times. The title of the article, Entire School Board Resigns After Members Are Caught Mocking Parents on oh. Livestream. Yes. The school board is in Oakley, California, not Oakland, California, Oakley, California. Yeah, Oakland's like, get that straight. <laughs> oh, trust me. Several people say, you heard what happened in Oakland? I said, no, it's Oakley. And what they didn't realize, the mic was still on. And members spent approximately two minutes mocking parents, suggesting that these parents really wanted their students or their children to go back to school so they, quote, and have their babysitters back. They also wanted to send their children back to school so, quote, they can smoke their marijuana. And they said a number of other things. <laughs> Needless to say, the mayor of the city, Sue Higgins, said that although she has no jurisdiction over the Oakland Union uh, Elementary School District, she called on all board members to resign. And a number yeah, of them actually did. And they decided <laughs> to step away. But I'm going to take a different take on this. By letting them resign, you actually let them off the hook. What I would have done, and I would say this to other school systems who may find themselves in a in a similar position. Number one, telling them to resign may be the great PR thing to do, and it might be the good politically correct thing to do, and it might be the good educational thing to do. But you've lost two things. Number one, people with institutional memory. 
uh, about exactly how the school system was running during this, you know, during the uh, pandemic. And number two, guess what? They owe you a lot of favors. If they weren't accountable before, guess what? They're going to be more accountable and more attentive to your needs because they know they've been caught. So if it's not too late, I would recommend you bring those people back if they want to. They have a lot of uh, work they can do for you. And it also shows you what some people, not all, but some people really think about families. I mean, like, okay, so first of all, uh, I, I know you're a member of many boards. I've been member. I'm a member of two school boards. Nightmare, but I just can't. I, I would like to say I cannot imagine any of the school board members that I currently work with um, mm-hmm. like talking about parents in that way. Maybe I'm delusional. I am not sure, but... Wow. And you may have a point about, hey, uh, make them make them stay and maybe the parents can teach them a lesson or two about yep. what it is that they need <laughs> and and what and who actually should have a say in how the schools are run. Because, you know, let's talk a little bit about parent power. If you could hear my dog barking in the background, I apologize, but it's because she, too, objects to what went on in Oakley, not Oakland, California. Okay. <laughs> Anyhow, Gerard, we have, we're going to move this right along because we've got, um, we've got a guest today, Ayan Hirsi Ali. I think a lot of our listeners, you might, you might be saying like, I know that name. Why do you know this name? She's the author of many yep. books, including one for which she's, um, Infidel, which many, which many of us know. Um, we have uh, a lot to, to learn and hear from this guest. So let's get right to it coming up after this. Learning Curve listeners, I bet you are as pleased as I am to know that today we are going to be speaking with Ayan Hirsi Ali, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, Stanford University, and founder of the AHA Foundation. She served as a member of the Dutch Parliament from 2003 to 2006, and while in Parliament, she focused on furthering the integration of non-Western immigrants into Dutch society and on defending the rights of Muslim women. She's written several books, I'm sure many of you will know them, including Infidel in 2007, Nomad from Islam to America, A Personal Journey Through the Clash of Civilizations, Heretic, Why Islam Needs a Reformation Now, and The Challenge of Dawah. Her new book, Pray, Immigration, Islam, and the Erosion of Women's Rights, is now available. Prior to joining the Hoover Institution, she was a fellow at the Belfer Center's Future of Diplomacy Project at Harvard University and a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C. She received her master's degree in political science from Leiden University in the Netherlands, a place that I know well that's quite beautiful, I'm happy to say. Ayan Hirsi Ali, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on The Learning Curve today. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm very much honored. Thank you. We are really looking forward to to listening to you. So I think a lot of our listeners are going to to know you for um, the book Infidel, um, and the Pulitzer Prize winning author Anne Applebaum described it as a un- as a unique book and described you as a unique writer. Um, Fareed Zakaria described it as an amazing book by an amazing person. So I think our listeners, um, some of whom will will have some idea, but not everyone, um, would love to know a little bit about you, your life growing up as a girl in Somalia, Saudi Arabia, and Kenya, and also because we cater to a lot of folks who are interested in education. 
um, about your early education, your your immigration, um, and and what it was like coming west. Um, we'd also like to know about your time in Dutch Parliament. So I know that's quite a bit, but happy to sit back and listen if you will indulge. <laughs> okay, I will try and summarize it as much as possible um, because it's quite. Um, it, it's quite a long story. Um, so I was born in 1969 in Mogadishu, Somalia. That's for most Somalis of my age a significant year, because in October of that year, um, Somali society was um, busy trying to, you know, it was after decolonization. They declared themselves independent of Italy and the United Kingdom, and we were going to embark on a future of freedom. And my father was one of the politicians back in the day who uh, who truly believed, he had come to America, and he truly believed that it was possible to, uh, to develop uh, the brand new nation of Somalia into a thriving democracy. Um, America was his example. And in October of that year, 1969, a young Somali uh, member of the of the military uh, seized power, and so th- that was the end of the dream. And that explains why we lived in so many countries because my father was put in prison by that dictator Mohamed Siad Barre, who declared himself president of Somalia and was there for 21 years. My father takes uh, is put in prison. He manages to escape with a friend. And he uh, ultimately, we I see him for the first time in my life, and I was about the age of, of seven or eight years in Saudi Arabia. We live in Saudi Arabia for one year, uh, and then we are deported. We're deported because the Saudi government gives my father a job to decode Morse code, but they also demand that he uh, abstains from any involvement in Somali politics. My father accepts the job from the Saudi government, takes the salary, but continues to get involved in Somali politics. And when they find out, they give us 24 hours to leave the country. And to this day, I say it's one of the best things that has ever happened to me was to be deported from Saudi Arabia as an eight or nine-year-old because imagine if I had grown up there as a young woman. I wouldn't be where I am now. So we leave Saudi Arabia. We go to Ethiopia for a year and a half. And uh, I witness as a child what it really is for um, a political opposition or a political resistance to be waged from a neighboring country into then what is our country of origin, Um, uh, you know, the triumphs, the disappointments, the men who go to the battlefield and don't come back. And I tried to write what I remember of that account in Infidel. In any case, my mother hates being in Ethiopia because at that point, Ethiopia and Somalia were also at war. So we moved to Kenya. And uh, we arrived in Kenya in August of 1980. And that's where I, for the first time, I started to learn how to speak English, uh, because Kenya was a former colony of Britain. Um, the education system was uh, modeled on the British system. 
Now, talking of early education, I think first grade, I was in Somalia for my second grade. I was in Saudi Arabia for my third grade. I was in Ethiopia. And from fourth grade all the way to the end of high school, I was in Somalia. (laughs) And and, and, as far as that is concerned, I've been exposed to some different, uh, not just cultures and uh, geographical contexts, but also education systems and other languages. So by the time we, by the time I leave Kenya, I speak um, Somali, which is my mother tongue, Arabic, Amharic, which is the language spoken in Ethiopia, and English and Swahili, which are the two main languages. English is the main language in Kenya. Um, again, I want to stick with the theme of education because uh, another moment I want to share with your audience is that my father, unlike many other men of his age, insisted that my sister and I not only go to school, but that we stay in school. Mm-hmm. And so for that, I'm forever grateful. And the schools we're talking about are in Nairobi, Kenya, where I went to part of, uh, let's say, middle school and high school. And during those years, um, I was exposed to a lot of English literature, but also bits and pieces of American culture. Uh, one of the most memorable reads of my teenage years were the series Nancy Drew. Uh, Nancy Drew's, yeah, and the Hardy Boys. Um, and I think books like that and, and um, stories like that gave me, and I, I hope some of my classmates and, and countrymates, a sense that there was a world that was outside of the one we lived in. And again, to give you an idea, I come from a Muslim society. We're living in a Muslim household. When we get to Kenya, my father leaves us. He goes back to Ethiopia uh, to get on with his political opposition. And so we're left there with my mother, grandmother, brother who's one year older and sister who's a year and a half younger. And what I see around me uh, is a context where my mother feels completely powerless and she is a total victim of the circumstances around her. She doesn't speak the language. She has to depend on a male guardian for everything, even though her proper male guardian, her husband is away. Um, All around me at school, I went to Muslim girls secondary school in Nairobi. Many of my classmates just disappear. And when I say disappear, it means when it's roll call in the morning and the names are called, we all say absent, absent, absent. And of course, we find out what's happening. These girls are being pulled out of school and uh, pushed into early marriages with men they don't know, have never heard about. So their education gets stunted. They become mothers too early. And I escaped that fate, I would say, mainly because my father was away. But when he comes back in 1992, and by that time I'm 22 years old and I'm just hitting fast forward right now, um, he, even though he was modern, even though he sent my sister and me to school, even though he insisted we stay in school, even though America was a model of democracy for him, still he is the servant of custom and tradition. And custom and tradition dictates that uh, every father 
must organize his daughter's marriage. And so he finds me a husband and he fa- he marries me off completely in sync with our norms and customs as Somalis and as Muslims. I don't like that. And I'm sent off to Germany to stay with a relative. This man that I'm married to is a Canadian citizen, but he is a distant cousin, a distant relative of ours. Mm. And so he has to go back after the marriage ceremony. He has to go back to Canada to his life and his job. And it's my father in concert with other relatives who are in charge of um, helping me acquire the immigration papers and getting me through that. That couldn't happen back in Kenya in 1992 because there was a huge surge of displaced peoples, refugees from Somalia. So they figured that Germany would be the best place to do it where we had a relative. And uh, when I'm sent to that relative, he says, I'm going to put you up with another extended family here while I take care of your papers. And after spending about 48 hours, maybe 72 hours at most, I figure out that the travel document I have with me gives me access to four other countries. Uh, according to uh, a treaty I later on learned uh, was called the Schengen Treaty. Uh, but that at that point, I'm 22 years old, fresh from Nairobi, Kenya, and all I know is that I have a travel document in my hand that gives me access to four other countries. Wow. <laughs> and I also figure out, with the help of one of the teenage boys of the family that is hosting me, that I could actually take a train from Bonn, where I was at that time, to Amsterdam. And I also figure out from other Somali relatives that they were they were coming in from Somalia and going to the authorities of these various countries and asking for asylum. And there I see a window of opportunity. I think, okay, uh, I either go along with everything, I go to Canada, I spend the rest of my life with the husband that my father chose for me, and I lead a life like my mother's. And like the lives of those classmates of mine, or I take that train and I ask for asylum and I know I'm going into the unknown, but just take the risk. And that's what I did. I jumped into the unknown. I asked for asylum. And I think, again, aside from being deported from Saudi Arabia, it's <laughs> Those incredibly great things that happened to me. Well, it sounds like it, it didn't just happen to you. There was something in you that <laughs> observed and, and, and you put yourself in that incredible, brave position. Um, and, and so you, you, you get to the Netherlands and eventually you, you become a member of parliament. Can you, can you help us fill the gap there? <laughs> I wish it was that easy. You know, you get off the train and you go straight. To yeah, the- and there it is. No. <laughs> um, so, and I just want to reflect on the words you said, where you said it didn't happen to you. You did it because you were brave. Uh, but at that time, obviously, as soon as um, my parents and my extended family find out what I've done, which takes them about four mm-hmm. months, 
and they don't think of it as brave. Uh, they don't think of it as wonderful. They think uh, of it as horrifying and terrible. And um, they made it very, very clear to me that if I didn't get back immediately, they would cut ties with me, um, that my life here on earth would be horrible and desperate, and that in the life hereafter, uh, God, Allah, would burn me over and over again. And so I had to deal also with that kind of pressure. Um, I didn't. I, I carried on. Uh, I made friends with the first people I met who were the people who worked in the Asylum Seeker Center that I was put up. I volunteered to work with them. I volunteered as a translator. I volunteered in the laundry room. I did things like that. And 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 I made friends with the people who worked there, and I asked them, well, how can I find my way here? And they were delighted because usually they were pushing asylum seekers to go to language class, whereas I was coming in and saying, well, I want to go to language class. Help. And these people were incredibly generous and helped me not only to find my way to the language classes, but also helped me with finding books, uh, suggested I watch Dutch television, brought me old newspapers to read, Dutch old newspapers, so those are free, the ones that they want to throw away, uh, and really continued to help me um, until at some point, that is about two and a half years later, uh, I wasn't volunteering to translate for Somali people from English to Somali, Somali to English, but I was now translating from Somali to Dutch and Dutch to Somali, and I was getting paid for it. <laughs> and this becomes, I mean, I, it, it really gets exciting because before that I was doing factory jobs, I was taking cleaning jobs, I was taking any kind of job that was available because, and I had to take those jobs because I didn't speak Dutch. But th taking those jobs also incentivized me to work day and night at improving my Dutch skills because I knew that was the way out of the cleaning jobs, out of the factory jobs. So um, I'm making what to me seemed like a ton of money on the side from from the translation, from the translating and the interpreting. Um, but then, obviously, I also wanted to get to get on with it, complete my education. I only had a high school diploma. And I decided to study political science because I really wanted to understand this society that I had come into, the Netherlands, Dutch society, its culture. Why were they so generous? Where did all this money come from? Why was it so peaceful? Why did they all get along so well? Why, why the women to me seemed just from a completely different planet. They dressed as they pleased. They worked. They, 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 they were in many ways just really not different from the men. And when I asked about this, they said, well, we're equal before the law. We're equal this, we're equal that. And I wanted to know where all that came from. And I could study history or I could study political science. And I, I went with political science mainly because I grew up in a political family where my father was, as you know, involved with politics. And I thought it wasn't 
I didn't want to just hear the story of what happened. I also wanted to understand the dynamics of power because in each and every country I had lived in, Somalia became a dictatorship, Saudi Arabia was a theocracy, Ethiopia was a dictatorship, Kenya was a dictatorship pretending to be a democracy because it was a one state. So I really wanted to understand you know, the concept that there were people, leaders, who were serious about sharing power or conceding power. Um, that kind of thing fascinated me. I was fascinated by the welfare state. And the only way to do that was to go and study it. And so I had to do some of those entry exams uh, that you're required to do, again, with the help of my Dutch friends, uh, got into the best university uh, in the Netherlands, the oldest and the best, and that is Leiden. Um, yeah. Very demanding, um, but the, 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 the quality of the education uh, that I experienced was absolutely excellent. You didn't just get go in there and say, can you answer my questions? That's not how it worked. You got about a thousand pages, uh, I, I thought, a week, which I thought was overwhelming at the time, that you are not only required to read, but to critique, to take an oral exam on, and to take a written exam on. So you had to work very, very hard to get through all of that. And there were no safe spaces or microaggressions and you know, there there was no exception for anyone. Everyone was treated in exactly the same way, regardless of your skin color or your gender. Or sometimes I even tried to get out of things by saying, Dutch is not my first language. And the professors would say, well, that's a pity. You just have to work a little harder. Um, <laughs> so it it toughened me up. It's a, it's a place where I was taught how to think. I was introduced to thinkers um, and the works of people I would never otherwise have heard of, but also people whom I would say at that time shocked my sensibilities. And the more I was shocked, the more delighted the professors because they thought that's exactly what they were out to do, to get students to get to come out of their comfort zones and engage with the material. And so for that, I mean, I forever, forever, I'm grateful to my professors at Leiden. And uh, I graduated in the year 2000. So I started in 1995 and I finished in 2000. And then I went on to work for a think tank, which was um, affiliated with the Social Democratic Party. Um, that is the center-left establishment party in the Netherlands. And then 2001 came along, and in September of that year, uh, the mm. Twin Towers were attacked here in America and the Pentagon, and there was a, a, a fourth flight on its way to the White House. And I don't have to tell any American who was alive at that time and even afterwards um, what, what uh, a shocking event that was mm -hmm. and a game-changing event. And uh, like most Americans, we were all glued to the television and we were all trying to explain or understand what it was that happened, what motivated those 19 men to conduct this attack, who plotted it, 
everybody wanted to understand the motive, the motive. And I was reading uh, and watching on television all sorts of commentary that the 19 men who obviously couldn't speak for themselves because they not only massacred people, but they died in the process and, and intended to die. Um, the explanations that we were getting were this, they did this because of American foreign policy, because of the Israeli-Palestinian equation, because of inequality, because of poverty. These people are desperate. And so when people are desperate, they take desperate measures. And I wasn't buying any of that because as we got a collage of what they had left behind and bin Laden and his Al-Qaeda people um, claimed to be behind uh, the attack, as more and more information came in, I said, I recognize this. These men were not motivated by any of this, all of this other stuff that you're talking about uh, may be relevant, but it's not the central problem. The central issue is that these men acted out of conviction. This is jihad. And once upon a time in Nairobi, when I was a teenager, about the year 1985 to about 1990, I actually was a member of the Muslim Brotherhood. And I remember listening to sermons, the exact same sermons that these men had been indoctrinated with. And I remember feeling, as an individual, feeling compelled uh, by by that material and believing in it. And uh, one example I always give is in 1989, the Ayatollah Khomeini uh, called for the head of Salman Rushdie, author of the Satanic Verses. And Mm -hmm. some of my uh, friends and fellow believers in Nairobi, we were busy burning the Satanic Verses. And I, I was I was one of them. So I, I knew the narrative. Uh, I knew that it's, it, 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 it was stooled in the scripture and history of Islam, which at that time was my religion. Um, and I recognized the logic of not only just sitting there and listening to how wonderful jihad is and why you should act, but also the incentive and the drive if you're a young man to act. And that's what those 19 men did. And I had no idea at the time that by taking that position, I was getting myself into, um, well, for some, it, it, it is, oh, you are so brave and look at you, what a great job you did. But for others, it was pure infamy. So I had, at this point, not only disappointed my parents by running away from the marriage they arranged for me and from, you know, the customs and traditions of our Somali family, but now I had done something even worse. I was actually taking on Islam as our religion and blaspheming, and I didn't stop there in my day job at the think tank, uh, the story of 9-11 was set aside 
I wasn't put in with the work group that was working on terrorism. I was put in the work group that was working on immigration and integration. And uh, the key question I was asked over and over again was, well, it took you about 10 years from the time you came to Holland to get to this place where you're now working for the think tank and you're fully assimilated. We're struggling with ways of trying to incentivize first generation and second generation immigrants here in Holland from Turkey and Morocco who have been here for at least a generation, if not more. So what is your secret? How do we do it? And obviously, like all my colleagues, I had to dig into the data, get all the social economic factors and all the social cultural factors that were allowed it to be printed and say, the one thing that's really different, what makes me different from all the other people who've been here all this time and who are not assimilated, all the other young women is, they were pulled from school. They were forced into marriages they don't want. Their education career was curtailed. They've been taught not to assimilate. They've been taught to reject Dutch norms and values. On the other hand, because I was on my own and I was able to make friends with the local people, the Dutch natives, I was able to integrate at a faster pace because I got the opportunity. I'm not smarter than them. I'm not different from any of them. I just got the opportunity. Give give these girls the opportunity and the integration process will be shortened radically. And I don't know if this just to me sounds so mundane and commonsensical, but again, it was another shockwave. It was seen as another swipe at Islam and not at Islam now, but at all Muslims and on and on it goes. So that is, <laughs> I mean, in my life story, how I transitioned from sort of the stuff that went on in my personal life and my own personal growth to how I come to these issues of Islam, immigration, integration, and now this book that we are about to discuss, that's the story behind it. And in, 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 I've tried to be as short as possible, and I'm sorry it took me so long. No, some good things take time. And thank you so much for opening up your personal life to Kara and I, uh, who don't know you personally, but know you professionally. And more importantly, for using your voice for freedom and hope. Um, I'm also a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, so uh, always good to see someone with AEI connections. Let me take a piece from something you just mentioned as relates to human rights and free speech. And you're pretty clear about the importance of voice and speaking truth to power. And you've spoken about political correctness in the West and how it's shutting down reasonable public debate, but we, you know, on college campuses as well as inside legislative bodies. You know, when you talk to educators and young people, what should we tell them about the dangers to free exchange of ideas when they become hijacked by political correctness, identity politics? or the balkanization of societies? So the direct answer to your question right there is for the people whose job it is to educate the young, 
to treat them the way my professors treated me at Leiden University. Again, I repeat, I was taught how to think. There was no, um, I want to call it tough love. They gave me tough love. Uh, if a professor expected me to read what was required reading, which was very diverse, I wasn't given the thoughts of only one philosophy or the other. We were given always opposing philosophies to work out, and then you were asked yourself to critique it. And I think that that is the job of educators, is to expose young minds to as many views as possible, as many ways of doing things as possible, and then to ask them to engage with the material and ask them what they would do differently instead of protecting them. And this is what we are seeing now in America. Instead of protecting kids from ideas that they either don't know or are strange to them or make them uncomfortable. That is the direct answer to your question. And there is a reason for this. The reason for opening up the minds of the young is because in the future, they inherit this amazing civilization, this amazing country. And it is their job to carry it on, to improve on it, and to pass it on to future generations. If you do and carry on doing as some of our universities are doing in America, where kids are being exposed only to things that make them comfortable and only to advocacy for so-called justice, they will learn nothing about justice. This is an exercise in the closing of minds, not in the opening of minds. Some of the things that I see in some of these universities, it's akin to propaganda. And it's not education. History is taught not as a description of what happened in the past and how different historians have looked at it in different ways and simply by using original material to convey this is what happened, this is why it may have happened. Now history is taught as an advocacy class. It's a chronicle of everything that Western civilization did wrong. All that was ugly, the slavery, the colonialism, the Holocaust, it's all bad. And they hardly ever taught anything that Western civilization did right. When in fact, not only Westerners, but the whole world has benefited from the fruits of the good things that Western civilization did. The rule of law, medicine, science, objectivity, universal human rights, all the comforts that we take for granted, none of that is associated with the history of Western civilization. And so when I find it shocking because I came to this country really hopeful. I didn't get to the part of the story of why I left the Netherlands. But when I left the Netherlands... One of the reasons in Parliament was because I was asked not to talk about Islam anymore and not to criticize it anymore. That's what caused, what lay underneath all the brouhaha 
was that I was found to be guilty of costing our party votes, the Muslim vote, in the larger cities because I was critical of Islam. And then I came to the American Enterprise Institute, and Chris DeMuth, who was back, the pre- back then the president of the American Enterprise Institute, mm-hmm. he said to me, you are now in America. You don't have to fear any of that. You're welcome to the American Enterprise Institute, and you can publish whatever you want. You can say whatever you want. Obviously, we'll critique you, and they did. But he said this exchange of ideas and exchange of perspectives the value of that is so that we can learn from one another. So there's no muzzling here, and I wasn't muzzled. And so to me, it is a huge shock now, 14, 15 years later, to find what is going on in our newsrooms, in our universities, even in, you know, corporations. This is what we call woke uh, or cancel culture. Mm-hmm. This is a shocking development to me. You used a very interesting phrase uh, related to the closing of the American mind, which is actually the title of a book. Uh, Professor Alan Bloom, when he was alive at the University of Chicago, published that book in the uh, late 1980s. And it caused a lot of concern for many. It caused them to actually exhale and say he's right. But for you to reach some of the same conclusions having grown up in very different cultures, uh, it says a lot. Let's do this. Talk to us about your current book. And then when you're finished, if you would not mind, please read a passage for us. So (laughs) this book is called Prey, P-R-E-Y. And I think the whole story is summed up in the subtitle, Immigration, Islam, and the erosion of women's rights in Europe. My publisher took the word Europe off the cover because um, (laughs) he feared that if you have Europe on the title, Americans won't buy it. Uh, But it's really a story about Europe. Um, In 1992, when I came to Holland, I described what I saw on the streets, women who were free to go wherever they pleased, dress as they pleased, and go about their daily business and felt safe and took that safety for granted. That has now changed in many neighborhoods, especially in like the neighborhood where I was uh, placed in 1993, for instance, is what you call a working class neighborhood. Uh, That has now changed. And it's not just the Netherlands, it's Germany, it's France, it's Belgium, it's Sweden. It's anywhere where there is a considerable number of immigrants from Muslim-majority countries, hence the title Immigration and Islam. And what's going on is that men with from Muslim-majority countries who are not used to um, interacting with emancipated women find themselves in a context that to them is shocking. And many of them, not all of them, but many of them act as if they were back in their home countries the way they would act. Catcalling women, 
groping, harassing, and very often worse. And there you have, and, and I've been a witness to all of this, a confrontation of values, not as abstract as, say, the freedom of speech, because we've had lots and lots of debates in Europe about Islam and blasphemy and blasphemy laws and that sort of thing. As you said earlier on, Kara, my friend Theo Fungo was murdered by a Muslim who was offended because of the film we made together. So recently we had the beheading of Samuel Paty, a teacher in France, uh, who was teaching about the freedom of speech. So I think Europeans were used to that, that debate, and they know, and I know that they're struggling with it. They were also used to, through very a lot of activism, and I was involved in some of it, that Muslim women in their households were treated differently by their own relatives from European women. But what they're seeing now is that because the scale, the number of male Muslim immigrants is large enough that the problem is spilling over onto the streets and it's affecting other women and it's affecting them in their daily lives. And the book tells the story not only of whatever I could find in terms of collected statistics or the anecdotes of the women who are actually attacked and survive or the ineptitude of the institutions that are supposed to be dealing with this. But what I find and find really shocking is the way European women are now adapting to that reality in pretty much the way Muslim women in Muslim countries have adapted to that. So in a lot of these neighborhoods where you can't take your safety as a woman for granted in the public space, before you leave your front door, you start thinking about, will I be safe? Do I look provocative? Uh, some of them carry pepper spray. Others call their friends because they don't want to go out on their own. They decide not to take this street, but that street. Maybe instead of taking the bike, I should take a car or the train. Maybe instead of this train, that train. Maybe instead of jogging outside like I used to all my life, I'm, I have to take a gym membership. And on and on and on it goes. And that's the kind of, of change that I chronicle in this book. And the shocking truth that as with the freedom of speech and as with other confrontations, I mean, confrontations of value between the value system of Islam and the Western value system, the Western leaders and institutions who are supposed to be dealing with this are not doing it or not doing it adequately. There are exceptions like Denmark, Austria, I've seen some attempts in the Netherlands, but I can't say that they have this problem under control. Thank you. Please pick a passage that you'd like to read from the book. Thank you for sharing your story. It's rare that we have someone who's able to bring international uh, incidents in different countries with different languages, multilingual countries, also countries with some level of religious diversity coming to the United States and then saying, I'm telling you, you're finding, you're going to find yourself in a really tough spot if you don't learn from the lessons of Europe, 
As Americans, we often believe that we can teach the world a lot, and we can. But here are examples listening to you where we can learn from others. Please read a passage that you would like. Um, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to do this because I think it portrays, it gives a better picture of what I want to say uh, better than I can do it in an interview. Um, I'm going to read from Pray, page 50. A selection of cases. In 2016, a 45-year-old woman jogging in a Munich park was attacked from behind. Her assailant strangled her so tightly with her headband that he lacerated her neck and she collapsed unconscious. He raped her, then left her in a bush. By a fluke spot check at the attacker's workplace, police identified his DNA. This evidence also implicated him in a rape the year before of a 19-year-old woman jogging in nearby Rosenheim. The rapist was a 28-year-old asylum seeker known in a court as Imra T. Initially claiming to be Syrian, Imra T. was in fact a Kurdish Turk who had applied for asylum in Germany in 2015 along with his pregnant wife and young son. In August 2018, a 19-year-old Somali broke into a retirement home in Halle, central Germany. He sexually assaulted one of the residents, a 74-year-old woman, simply because he wanted sex. He threw his victim onto the bed and beat and choked her, pulling his trousers down in order to rape her. But she managed to call for help. The man was arrested days later for a separate burglary and received a seven-year juvenile sentence. And on and on and on it goes. That is just to give you a picture. And it's a very, very, very small snapshot, the smallest of snapshots of this problem. But this is just to give you a picture of what's going on. Well, certainly it is devastating and riveting, but incredibly important. And we thank you. I, I fully understand now why it, you felt it best to convey the the book and and what it means um, through the writing. So, Ayan Hirsi Ali, thank you so very much for spending this time with us today. I I'm pretty sure I'm speaking on behalf of all of our listeners. This is just, it's been a privilege, and um, we've learned so much, and and clearly much more to learn um, from this new book of yours entitled Pray. Thank you so very much. Thank you so very much for having me and for giving me this opportunity um, to talk about to talk about pray. Thank you very much. And Gerard, wow, after that, just, I, I'm, I'm sort of awestruck right here. I'm going to have to go back and listen to this podcast all over again. What a wonderful, what a wonderful guest we've, uh, we're so privileged to have such wonderful people on this show. We're going to end, of course, um, with the tweet of the week, as we always do. And this one from, um, it, it's actually from rollingout.com, but it's about Stevie Wonder. When was the last time you listened to a Stevie Wonder song, Gerard? Last week. There you go. Good man. Yeah. 
Stevie Wonder, and this is um, Stevie Wonder. He was explaining actually to Oprah Winfrey, of course, of all people. Um, she's I still miss her. Um, why he's moving to Ghana? You, you miss her? What I happened? know she's round, but like you oh, know, it's oh, okay. time in my I don't have time in my life at like four p.m. to sit. I got three kids now. I'm not a yeah. <laughs> I miss her show. But um, this is the tweet is Stevie Wonder explains why why he's moving to Ghana permanently. But I, you know, I watched and I dug into this and um, and he says a lot. But here's one key thing that he says that I want to leave all of us with uh, during this time, during this month. Um, He says, I don't want to see my children's children's children have to say, oh, please like me. Please respect me. Please know that I'm important and please value me. What is that? He asked. So he says he's moving to Ghana because he feels that, um, you know, he, he's obviously he's a little bit upset <laughs> with what he's, um, with what he and, and his children and his family and his community have, uh, experienced for so long in this country. So we will leave it. Wow. Um, we've given our listeners a lot to think about this week, Gerard. A little pats on the bat. Nothing if not provocative, correct? He is heading to Ghana. Uh, It's the same thing that Dr. Du Bois did in the latter part of his life. He left the U.S. as well. Um, Randall Robinson and several other people of note have left and gone to different countries because of this. So that's unfortunate, but it says a lot. But since you mentioned Stevie Wonder, I know you like to hear me sing. Let's go. And the song that I was listening to last week was Higher Ground. I was, I, I was going to say it was. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Wait, wait, you're not going to um, say? Come on. One, two, three. I'm so damn glad he let me try it again. Because the last time on earth I lived a whole world of sin. I'm so glad I know now more than I knew then. Going to keep on trying till I reach my highest ground. Yep. Uh, I just wish I could play music. Listeners, I was dancing in the background, I promise. <laughs> I mean, Gerard Robinson. Higher ground, so many talents. Learning curve. (laughs) We're always taking it to a higher ground. Okay, Jordan, next week we are going to be talking to your friend, my friend, Mr. Tommy Schultz. He is now the CEO elect of the American Federation for Children. I know for a fact he recently relocated to Texas. Um, and you know, so we're, we're going to, I think we'll hear both about a little bit about what life's been like <laughs> with some oil and water and hope thankfully he's okay. And we wish the same for the many, many people that have been affected. Uh, many of our friends and, and listeners that have been affected by the terrible weather and, um, and disaster in Texas and hoping people are on the mend, uh, until next week, Gerard, happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. I have enjoyed this year and look forward to 52 more shows. Heck yeah, I look forward to more songs. All right, so bring it. (laughs) Take care. Talk to you next week.